0: Amen. Sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 38 through 41. Only a few verses today as we keep moving through this wonderful account of the life of Jesus. Mark 9, 38 through 41. John said to him, Teacher, will by no means lose his reward. You may have heard the story of the man that arrives in heaven, and as soon as he arrived, he was assigned an angel for his orientation. By the way, this story is totally fictitious, if you haven't caught up by now. The angel led him through the streets of gold, through the river of water of life, There the man saw a group of people filled with joy, loudly worshiping the Lord, and the angel said, those are the Pentecostals. A little further down, he saw another group of people exuberant in reverence and theology, but they looked a little puzzled and perplexed. The angel said, those are the Presbyterians, but they just found out that they were wrong about baptism all along, so... They're dealing with that. I I say that totally joking. I'm a Baptist who reads an inordinate amount of Presbyterian theology. Finally, the man saw another group of people. The angel pointed them out to the man and said, These are the Southern Baptists. But you have to be very quiet around them because they think they're the only ones here. (laughs) Now, yes, this is a humorous story. But humor often reveals a little bit of truth, doesn't it? We can at times think so highly of ourselves, of our religion, of our theology, that we end up viewing ourselves as the standard of faith rather than Christ. We can start thinking that God's work in the world is limited to us and those who are exactly like us. But that is not an accurate view of the kingdom of God. Christianity is not about conforming others to our image, but helping others be formed into the image of Christ. Christianity is not about our agenda, but the agenda of Christ. Christ Christianity is not about accumulating followers, for ourselves. But helping others follow Christ. Romans 8.28. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the goal of Christianity. The formation of men and women after the image of Christ. Why? Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, so that Christ may receive all glory. So today, as Jesus continues his journey towards Jerusalem, charging that city, charging the cross, last week we saw Jesus confronting... The disciples with pride this week we will see the same. They wanted to know who was the greatest among themselves. But Jesus taught them that the greatest in the kingdom, the greatness in the kingdom is displayed through service and humility. Today we see the disciples struggling with pride again. Specifically, we see the apostle John struggling to see how great the work of Christ is. John thinks that God's work is limited. He sees God's work in a limited way. But today, the disciples receive another lesson on humility. Jesus is at work in many more ways than we are aware of. And we must lift up our eyes to see the kingdom and understand that we are part of the kingdom, but we are not the king ourselves. So I have two points for today. First, we'll see the disciples' narrow view of the kingdom. And then we'll see Jesus' wide view of the kingdom. So as we begin in our text in verse 38, for the first time we hear from John. Mark doesn't often highlight the speech of individuals, especially not by name. But here he does. This is John the Apostle that wrote the Gospel of John, that wrote the three epistles, that wrote Revelation. John is often associated with his brother James, and along with Peter, they form Jesus' inner circle of disciples. Jesus spent more time with Peter, James, and John than with any other disciple during his ministry. John and James, we're told back in chapter 3, were given the name Boanerges by Jesus himself. It's this is kind of translated from the Aramaic into the Greek, into English, as sons of thunder or sons of tumult. Probably referring to their zeal, probably referring to their passion. It is likely that John was a very young man at this point because it wasn't until the end of the century that he, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned Revelation. We see zeal in this passage, don't we? We hear zeal from John's voice. Uh, Perhaps John is approaching Jesus because... He heard, he heard from Jesus that the greatness is demonstrated to, through service. So, so John wants to know, Lord, is this a good service? Is this what I ought to be doing? John is zealous. Zeal is a passionate defense of what one believes is good. So so John did something passionately because he believed it was good. There is something beautiful and mesmerizing about zeal, isn't there? Zeal is good. We know that because the Bible tells us that God himself is a zealous God. His zeal accomplishes his purpose. Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. And we, too, are called to be zealous. Romans 12, 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. J.C. Ryle, Anglican theologian, once wrote in his book Practical Religion that zeal is a burning desire to please God, to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. We see this burning desire in John. He says in verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John is zealous, but his zeal here is misplaced. Zeal can be a little bit like fire. Can't it? Fire under control is so helpful. But when fire is out of control, it's so devastating. When speaking of the Israelites that rejected Jesus, even in their own religion, Paul says that their zeal is misplaced. He says in Romans 10, verse 2, For I bear witness that they have zeal for God. But their zeal is wrong. Why? Because their zeal is not according to knowledge. And this is exactly what's happening to John here. John sees someone genuinely doing a work in the name of Jesus. So John says to the man that was casting out demons, Don't do that. Don't cast out demons. Uh. Now, it's interesting that the man wasn't trying to cast out demons. The only trying here was John that was trying to stop him. The man was actually being successful in the casting out of demons. The irony here is that this man's success was actually pitted against the disciples' failure earlier on in this chapter, to cast out the demon from one young boy. There were nine disciples as Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And they could not exercise the demon. This man, on the other hand, succeeds. And what do the disciples do? They stop him. Oh friend, may our zeal never get on the way of the work of the Holy Spirit. May we not think we know better than God. Our hearts must be so malleable to the glory of God that whenever we see the Lord's hand at work, we must recognize it. Did you notice John's motivation for stopping the man? He said we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. That's the problem. We live in a world of followers. We live in a world where followers make someone important. So We desire them. We thirst for them. We post something on social media and then we check it incessantly to see if anyone found what we said valuable. We want followers, we want people to look to us as influencers. We account for someone's success according to how many followers they have on Instagram or Twitter. But Christianity is not about those who follow us. Christianity is not about our followers. Christianity is about following Christ. At the height of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther was informed that some people were so embracing his teachings that they began identifying themselves as Lutherans. Luther, whose goal was never to divide the church but to reform it, responded, The first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. What a great response. And actually, if you read the whole quote, Luther would go on to explain that what we need to do is not make followers of Paul and followers of Apollos, but followers of Christ. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7. through What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Notice that Paul doesn't say here, neither he who plants nor he who waters is much. No, he says, we're nothing. We're not worthy of of being followed. But only God is worthy to be followed because He is the one who gives growth. To promote the religion of Paul or to promote the religion of Apollos is to misapply zeal. In a world filled with Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Pentecostals and more, we must not forget that the blood of Christ does not atone for sins according to the will of men. The blood of Christ does not atone for local churches or denominations. No, the blood of Christ the, Christ, the blood of Christ atones for all who are found in Him. Christ is at work in this world in more ways than we can possibly count. Or be aware of. We just need to look past our own noses. Our own experiences. Our own theology. Our own selves. We must look out. And see the church. Humility leads us to understand that. A Christian is not someone who follows us. But someone who follows Christ. Therefore let us learn to rejoice. When we see God at work in ways that we wouldn't expect. And not stifle genuine movements of the Holy Spirit. We have to be careful not to become more exclusive with Christ than Christ himself. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have distinctives and convictions but I'm saying we dare not divide the body where there is true unity. It was enough that the man was casting out demons in Jesus' name. He didn't need to follow John. But John attempted to stop the work of the Spirit because he thought it was necessary for the men to follow him. But Jesus never required that. John failed to recognize the work of the Spirit. John had a narrow view of the kingdom of God. You know, friends, sometimes we can love our theology too much and and, and misunderstand, misunderstand the fact that there is room for disagreement. There is room for us to uphold the gospel together. And disagree on certain aspects of theology. Friends, sometimes we can love our local church too much. That we think that anyone who is truly pursuing Christ should come to our church. And we fail to realize that just a few miles west of us, there is First Baptist preaching the gospel faithfully. Just a, a few miles east of us, there's, there's First Baptist of the Atlantic. Preaching the gospel faithfully. Just a few miles south of us, there is 1st Baptist of Malabar. Preaching the gospel faithfully. There's Covenant Presbyterian. Northside Presbyterian, north of us. 1st Baptist of Coco. 1st Baptist of Titusville. Friends, the Lord is at work in so many ways right now. Do you realize that these churches that I just mentioned have men who believe the gospel, who love Jesus, who are seeking to lead their churches well to believe the gospel? Right now, this morning, the Spirit is at work in these places. The Spirit is not only at work as Central Baptist. We are thankful that He is at work among us. But just a superficial, cursory view of some of the churches that we associate with here in this town tells us, friends, the Lord is at work. And when we see the Lord at work, we rejoice. You know, my, my dream, my desire is that if the Lord gives us growth, One day we're going to say, you need to go. You need to go help this struggling church so that we can do a revitalization. And and whether you've been in this church for 60 years or 6 months, go. Go complete the afflictions of Christ because there are many who need to hear the gospel, repent, and believe. My, My dream is that we'll be a planting church That will see pockets in our city where the gospel is not being upheld. And we'll say, go. And you'll say, I will go. And we'll send people. And we'll send resources. So that our county would be filled with followers of Christ. Let us not love the local expression of our church so much that we miss the mission of Christ. Notice how Paul sets an opposite example to how John reacted. Some Christians were opposing Paul. We heard this read earlier uh, by Brandon in our service. Some people were opposing Paul. He's preaching. And in some ways, even criticizing him. Uh, Speaking of him as a weak man. Paul, instead of attacking them, rejoices. Because even though they were opposing Paul, they were not opposing Christ. What a great sign of humility. Philippians 1:15 through 15-18, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Here's apostolic authority, right? Shall I say, stop it? No, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We ought to rejoice in the proclamation of the gospel. We're so we're often so quickly to criticize how unchristian colleges and universities are, but when we hear about revivals in their campus campuses, we're skeptical. We say that's not a movement of the spirit. We can become overly critical over other churches because their music is shallow or their preaching is not up to our standards. We can criticize other Christians because their theology is shallow, but not ours. Ours is deep. We can engage in arguments with other believers on secondary and tertiary matters to the point that we label them heretics when they are actually true followers of Christ. We must be careful, friends, that we do not attribute to Beelzebub the work of the Spirit. This is a narrow view of the kingdom. We want all of Christianity to be just like us. We are the standard. This is a narrow view of the work that God is doing right now in the world. But when we have a narrow view of the kingdom, we rob Christ of His glory. And we must not do that. But notice how Jesus has a wide view of the kingdom. So let's consider now Jesus' wide view of the kingdom. Notice how Jesus res- responds to John in verse 39. He says, do not stop him. There is a continued continue aspect to this verb here. Uh, so perhaps, perhaps this would be better translated as never stop him. Never stop such a thing. Never stop someone from doing something like this. In other words, Jesus is saying, John, you're wrong. Why? Jesus says, because it is impossible for someone to do a mighty work in his name and afterwards speak evil of him. Jesus is saying that this man was an advocate for the kingdom. So never stand against those who promote the kingdom of God. And how did Jesus know that this man was an ally, an advocate for the kingdom? Well, for two reasons. First, because he was doing a mighty work. He was not just attempting to exercise demons like the disciples. He was actually accomplishing it. One clear evidence of kingdom work is the fruit it produces. Remember Moses back in Exodus 4. What set him apart from the magicians of Pharaoh? Was it not the fact that the signs that God gave to Moses were mighty, unlike the signs that were given to the magicians of Pharaoh? How about Elijah in 1 Kings 18? What sets Elijah, a single man, apart from the 450 prophets of Baal? It was the fact that when Elijah prayed, God answered. It's a mighty work. Greater sign no one has displayed than Jesus himself who died, but on the, ter- on the third day rose from the dead. Anyone who proclaims this sign, proclaims something mighty. So what must we render today? That is mighty. It's the preaching of the word of Christ. We know someone is a genuine believer. We know someone is an ally of the kingdom. If he preaches Christ. We see the evidence of the mighty work of God in our age. When we hear the gospel proclaimed. Forever looking for a church. Listen to the preaching. Is Christ preached in power? And if you hear Christ preached in power, that's a good church to join. The kingdom is built on the kingdom on the preaching of the gospel. First Corinthians one22 through twenty four. For Jews demand a sign, right? for that that's might. for them that's might. And Greeks seek wisdom. That's might for them. But we preach Christ and Him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power, the might of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul summarizes his preaching, he gives us the essence of his preaching. The preaching of Paul is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because that looks weak, but it unleashes the power of heaven. Friends, Jesus would say that the preaching of the Word of God must be about Christ Himself. He teaches His disciples that on the road to Emmaus. If you read every sermon that the apostles preached in the book of Acts, they're all about Christ. A sermon that is void of Christ and void of His work, friend, is a sermon that is not worth hearing. When we preach the Word of God, we must somehow see Christ and His work, Him crucified. Let us not get confused about what truly is mighty. The Apostle Paul himself, who performed incredible miracles, tells us that the power of God is revealed through the preaching of Christ crucified. If you want to see the gospel working mightily in your life, you must first experience the power of Christ crucified. If you want to see the kingdom working mightily through you, you must proclaim Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because Christ the Crucified is the one who bears our sins. Christ, the crucified, is the one who causes us who were born spiritually dead to experience life. Friends, outside of Christ, there's only the appearance of life. But life, and life abundant, life filled with might and power, is the life that rests on the fact that Christ died for our sins. And that He rose for our justification. Friends, there is no power outside of that. You can raise great kids who will be successful in this world. Who will be great citizens of this country. But there is only power in the proclamation of the gospel to your children. Friends, Do not long to see your children successful in this world and yet failing in trusting Christ. Success in parenting is seeing children coming to Christ. We don't control the destiny of our children, do we? No, but we control the gospel that they hear. And we must rest in that. Friends, do not long to be excellent in your work but fail to trust Christ. Do not long to be great in any way in this world, but fail to believe Christ and Him crucified. This is the message of the gospel, and the gospel is God's power. When to experience power, experience the gospel. But we also see, we also see that this man was doing a work in Jesus' name. This is why Jesus knew he was an ally to the kingdom. This man was doing a work not for his glory. Jesus tells us he was doing a work for Jesus' glory. He learned from Jesus and pointed others to Jesus. The disciples were just discussing Among themselves, who was the greatest? And this man was doing a work to display the greatness of Christ. What does it mean to work in Jesus' name? It means to acknowledge Jesus in all that we do. When we do something that is worthy of praise, we say, thank you. It is the grace of God in me. When we do something that other people notice and they start admiring you, you remind them that there is nothing good in you aside from the grace of God. We acknowledge God in all of our ways in what we do. The work we do ought to be a spotlight that shines brightly on Christ. And this is the heart of Christian unity. John wanted to separate himself from another person who was doing a work in Jesus' name. But Jesus tells him, no, those who do a work in my name should not be stopped. So when we all seek to do all things for the glory of God, instead of separation, we experience unity. We do what we do because of Christ, because of His kingdom. We do not seek to build a kingdom for ourselves. We seek to build the kingdom of God. If we all focus on building the kingdom of Christ, we will see more clearly that those who are contributing to His kingdom are for us as well. It is impossible to build the kingdom of Christ and to oppose it at the same time. 1 Corinthians 12.3 12, 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is speaking of my Lordship is an ally. Those are encouraging words. Friends, we have allies. We have many allies in Christ. We're not fighting this battle alone. The final goal of the building of the kingdom that is, the final goal is the building of the kingdom that is going to be everlasting. The goal is for the knowledge of God to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is the goal. And if we're going to accomplish this goal, we need to find allies in every corner. We have many allies in town, faithful churches. We have many allies throughout this country. We have allies in every corner of this world. Even the most closed countries have underground churches that worship the Lord this Lord's Day. So, if you feel discouraged in your own spiritual life, if you feel discouraged when you look out and you are concerned about the world, the world that you're going to leave for your children, don't be. Because Christ is at work in so many ways, but we just cannot see it right now. Now, It's important for me to make it clear that Jesus is not saying here that Christianity has no distinctions we must uphold. Jesus has pinpoint accuracy with the statement that he's making. Because in this statement, he's both saying the kingdom is wider than you think, but he's also saying the kingdom is very specific. The kingdom is exclusive. Jesus is actually defining what faithfulness or what faithful work looks like here. Faithful work is done in the name of Christ. Jesus is not saying that we're just looking for people who do good things in the world. And whoever does good is then a Christian. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is not saying that Christians are simply people who help other people. Okay? So, so, this is not a universalist view from Jesus. This is not Jesus saying that Christianity is about works. No. Jesus is saying that good works must be done in His name. Okay? Good works must be done in His name. So, sometimes I'm driving to church... And Sunday mornings, I see some people on the side of the road on Babcock picking up trash. And they have this uh, this jacket that reads, Atheists of Brevard County. Okay. Is what they doing good? Yes. Is it done in the name of Christ? No. It amounts to nothing. It amounts to nothing because they're still robbing Christ of his glory. They're doing it for themselves. They're doing it for their own glory. They're doing it for their own agenda. And the kingdom that they're building is not the kingdom of God. So, friends, Jesus is not saying just do good and don't worry. Jesus is saying do good in my name. In the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Jesus actually says something that sounds somewhat contradictory to what he says here in Mark. Matthew 12, 30, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So on one hand, we have to be gracious and see the hand of God at work broadly in the world. But on the other hand, we do not want to affirm something That is not of Christ. So at Central, we try to be careful to evaluate the work of God at our church through church membership. We believe that membership is an affirmation of the gospel. So when we practice church membership, we are saying what you're doing is bringing glory to Christ. Because you know Him. You've experienced Him. So. If you have not become a member of this church, can I encourage you to sign up to starting point that is going to be starting in about five weeks. So that you can understand more about what it means not just to do good, but to do good for the glory of Christ. We practice what we call regenerate church membership, which means that when we receive and retain members, we affirm their faith. We say to them the work that you are doing is for the glory of Christ. Church membership is a proclamation of the gospel and of recognition that those who believe, and a recognition of those who believe in it. For this reason, we're careful with the front door of our church. How people come into our membership, we seek to really examine their faith and see that they have come to know Christ. That's why we do starting point. That's why we interview every prospective new member. This is why we publish the testimonies of prospective members for the church to read. This is why new members come before the church for discussion and a vote. Because we are saying we want to recognize those who do work in the name of Christ. But this is also why we're careful with the back door of our church. How people leave our membership. If we are a member of this church, you must live your Christian life in community among us. This is what this table before us is all about. If we are not, if you are not living your Christian life among us, how can we affirm your faith in Christ? And by being, right, holding on to membership for reasons other than the gospel— We end up doing a disfavor to people because by retaining their membership, we are saying, we affirm your faith when really we should be telling them, friend, if you're not walking with Christ, you're not a Christian. Okay, let's get rid of this terminology, right, of so-and-so profess faith in Christ so they're saved, but they're not walking with Christ. No, friends, those who profess faith genuinely in Christ walk with Christ. Right? If you love me, you obey my commandments. I understand that some Christians experience seasons right, of struggle with sin. But friends, let us be clear. Let us be clear. We must see fruits of keeping with repentance in the lives of believers. This is what it means to do good for Christ. So let us be careful. My my desire is that we'll be so careful with the front door of our membership and the back door of our membership that whenever you look at our membership list, our membership role, you recognize every name on that list. And you recognize that name, save those who are homebound, as people who constantly come together before this table. To affirm their faith in Christ. To repeatedly say, yes, I am trusting in Him. I am not holding on to sin. I am repenting and I'm turning to Christ constantly. He died for me. He shed His blood for me. His body was crushed for me. And that is what we affirm together as a church. This is what it means to do a mighty work in the name of Christ. One of the greatest disfavors we can render to others is to affirm faith in membership when we, can't li- when we can't live out our Christian lives with them. If church membership is not personal, okay, personal relationships, if church membership is void of relationships, if you cannot know your pastor, your deacons, if you cannot know your fellow members, If you cannot come to the Lord's table together as a church, save homebound, then church membership is powerless and pointless. Jesus calls us to a personal relationship with him. And by extension, this personal relationship is lived within the covenant community he calls the church. And notice how Jesus ends this interaction, highlighting his relationship with the disciples. Look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What tender words. Notice how kind Jesus' words are. Giving a cup of water is the simplest one can do for a person. Jesus is saying, if anyone treats you with the smallest act of kindness because you are mine, they will have a sure heavenly reward. After the disciples failed in so many ways, after John hinders the advancement of the kingdom of God, they hear the words of Christ, whoever gives you a drink of water because you belong to me. John said, I tried to stop the man because he did not belong to us. But Jesus says, regardless, John, you belong to me. So friend, I wonder, do you belong to Christ? with flaws and sins, with all your shortcomings. You see, it's His kindness that draws us in. We're not drawn in because we're zealous, because we're passionate, because we're disciplined. We're drawn in because we belong to Christ. And this is what this table before us represents today. At this moment, I want to invite the deacons to come forward as we turn our attention to the Lord's table.